Turn to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, for the next three weeks, actually four, because there will be a break in this, uh, actually five, there'll be two breaks in this series, um, Easter and then uh, Tom preaching on April 9th. We're going to be looking at Jesus' prayer, uh, what's often called uh, the uh, high priestly prayer. John 17, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5 today. Not only is this verse, this passage often called the high priestly prayer, it's often praised as the holy of holies of sacred scripture. Uh, it is one of the uh, most written on, maybe, passages, most uh, highly held passages in all of scripture. We have numerous times where Jesus talked to God. Uh, we're told a bunch of times where he prayed but this is the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus. And to hear our Savior pray. I mean, he told us how to pray, and we read it this morning together. He, he, he modeled it for us that way as a question, or as an answer to a question, how should we pray? Do it like this. But here, we get to hear him do it. We get to see him do it. This is how Jesus prayed to his father. The, the, the importance of this passage cannot be overemphasized. Uh, as a matter of fact, down through history, it's been uh, praised regularly. Philip Melanchthon, a name you probably haven't heard of or possibly haven't heard of, but would be right up there with Martin Luther and John Calvin when it comes to the Reformation. As a matter of fact, uh, Melanchthon was the uh, intellectual force of the Reformation. Some scholars would say Melanchthon was the reason the Reformation continued. It was Luther's idea, but it was Melanchthon who put it together and, and was the brain. He was the first one to uh, create a systematic theology of Reformation belief and thought. God was brilliant. He said of uh, John 17, this would be in the early 1500s, there is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son of God himself. I think he captured it wonderfully in that, in that phrase, that sentence there. John Knox, who was a Scottish reformer, mid-1500s, uh, and the, the founder of Presbyterianism, Scottish pastor, had it read to him every day as he suffered from illness up to his dying day. That was the passage. John 17 was the passage he wanted read to him daily. And actually, uh, probably multiple times the day he died, he had it read to him. Thomas Manton, who was chaplain to Oliver Cromwell. Uh, if you know your British history, this would be for the very short period of time that... England didn't have a king or a queen. They had a commonwealth, and Oliver Cromwell was the leader of that commonwealth. His chaplain, Thomas Manton, preached 45 sermons just on these 26 verses. And then you have Marcus Rainsford, who was an Irish pastor, led evangelistic campaigns in the United Kingdom in the late 1800s, wrote over 500 pages of exposition on this one chapter. 
So there, there, there is much, much, much more here to, to mine than, than we're going to cover in three Sundays, but we're going to do what we can to, to, uh, to do it justice and to cover, uncover and to see what an incredible thing it was to have the Son of God pray for himself in verses 1 through 5, for his disciples in verses 9 through 19, but then for us, this room right now, today, in verses 20 through 26. We are in the Bible in a couple of places, and here we're in the Bible when Jesus prays for us. So look at me. Nope, look at your Bible. You don't have to look at me if you don't want to, but do open your eyes. I don't want you sleeping. Look at your Bibles, chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Jesus spoke these things. That's everything he's already said to the disciples from chapter 15 on. Looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. So this, this passage, it follows this, uh, what I uh, like to see as, well, it was definitely Jesus' last opportunity to teach, beginning in verse 13 where he washes their feet and then gives them the new command at the end of that, and chapter 14 begins to teach. There's an intensity now in his teaching. Jesus knows he's done. He knows that his time of, of, of one-on-one, face-to-face, extended opportunity to, to teach his disciples is about to come to an end. We've talked about his, uh, this over the past couple of weeks when we looked at John uh, 15, uh, John 10, and then John 15, and now John 17, that we don't even really know where this was. It, it could have been that he was, they were still in the upper room and they was, he was teaching them, but it could have been that he was walking to the garden where he would soon pray, Lord, not my will, but yours be done, where he would sweat drops of blood and where he would be arrested. Regardless of, of the exact location of the teaching, he knows it's over, that he will not have the opportunity to teach them face-to-face like this again. So it, it's almost like in these three, four chapters, he is cramming all of the past three years, telling them, guys, you've got to get this. No more playing around. No more, oh, we didn't know what you're talking about, Jesus. Oh, uh, well, we didn't get it. Oh, uh, you said it once, but you didn't say it ten times, so we don't understand. He's, no, you can't do that anymore. And then, sadly, well, they still didn't get it. We see that when Peter denies him. We see that when they scatter uh, at, the, uh, at, the, at the arrest. They'll get it. They're hard-headed. They're, they're sheep. Uh, we'll get it. We're hard-headed. We're sheep. But we'll get it the more we study and the more we spend time with him. In this prayer, in these first five verses of chapter 17, Jesus is praying for himself. But he's, he's praying very specifically for himself. He is, he's praying that he will be glorified. That's how he brackets this section of prayer. Verse 1, uh, Father, 
uh, the time has come. Glorify your son. Verse 5, Father, glorify me in your presence. He brackets his section with glorification. Now, what is he talking about when he says he wants to be glorified or he's asking God to, to glorify him? Glory, couple of definitions, three definitions that, that uh, give us a good idea of, of, of what he means here in various parts, different emphases throughout Scripture, but we can get a good idea. Uh, glorify means, one, giving or sharing a high status. Now listen to this, sharing a high status. If you want Jesus to again tell you he is God, he just did. Glorify your son. Make me equal with you. Not make me equal, because that would imply that at some point he was not. But Lord, show me, show the world that you and I are one. Give or share this high status. Uh, second definition, enhance the reputation. Enhance our reputation, he's telling to God. We together are the conduit for salvation. I die for them, you save them. I, I, I am here, you are there. We are united in this. The, the, we're not going to get into the Trinity this morning, if that's what you were hoping for. But they are united in this. Enhance your reputation, bring glory. Or uh, thirdly, it could be put into a position of honor or power. Any of those definitions work. At this time, Jesus is praying, in, in the, tomorrow morning, tomorrow around noon, when they crucify me, when they lift me up, glorify yourself through me. Glorify me, therefore glorify yourself. We will share this high status. Your reputation will be enhanced. We will be in a position of power. The devil saw the crucifixion, if I can put thoughts into his head, or at the very least, those who were doing his work saw the cross as their victory. We've won, we've stopped him, we've shut him up. He can't, he can't teach anymore, we've ended this. Uh, I shared an article and got some responses from it yesterday from a pastor in Kentucky who, uh, this, this article said that uh, substitutionary atonement is a horrible idea and in no way biblical. Now, substitutionary atonement, whether you've used those words or not, is what we believe Jesus did. He substituted, he, he was in our place, and he atoned. He, he made up for our sinfulness. He took on our sin. Substitutionary atonement. And this guy says, it's violence of God. It's this, it's that. Feel free to go to my Facebook page and read the article and give an attempt to understand what the guy was saying. It's not the easiest thing to do. But he's saying we don't, we don't need that anymore. And yet Jesus says, my hour has come. This guy says the cross was an accident. Jesus says it was the plan all along. My, the time has come. What I was here for is here now. Guys, I'm going to the cross. I have set my eyes on the cross since the beginning. This is what I'm doing. The time's now. We cannot get away from the absolute need for the cross or the plan for the cross. It was always Jesus' plan to go to the cross. So anytime somebody tells you the, the cross was an accident... Uh, an unfortunate circumstance 
tell them, no, that was my only way to salvation, and it was God's plan to save me that way all along. And then you can get into a longer discussion with them if you would like. But this was him glorifying himself, and by glorifying himself, glorifying God. If I be lifted up, tell me the cross wasn't planned. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. What was he talking about being lifted up? Praised and honored on the lips of men and the backs of donkeys and and thrones set in high places? No, if he be lifted up on that cross and crucified, he will draw all men to himself. And that's what he's doing. So he prays to to be glorified, to to be uh, honored, and to honor God in this next step that he is taking, the, the hour that has come. The thing is, Jesus already fully expressed God. Hebrews 1.3 and 2 Corinthians 4.6 both tell us this. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus, The, the Son is the radiance, the brightness, the, the visibility of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature. Jesus is is exactly what God would be if God were in the flesh. You know why? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. So Jesus expresses exactly what God is. 2 Corinthians says it similarly. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So he is the the same one who created light, shines into our hearts, the darkness of our hearts, and gives light, the light of knowledge of of God and his glory. Where do we find it? In the face of Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus already glorified the Father. We already saw the glory of God when we saw Jesus. We've read John up to this point, hopefully you have. You've read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You've read chronologically, you've read up to the cross, and, God, and Jesus has already shown the glory of God, and yet Jesus says, but you ain't seen nothing yet. Just wait till tomorrow when you see the cross. You'll see his glory, he says in this prayer. He prays for glory in the cross in verses 1 and 4, in heaven in verses 5, and in the church in verses 2 and 3, and that's the order we're going to take them this morning. Verses 1 and 4, verse 5, and then we're going to go back up to verses 2 and 3. So Jesus is glorified in the cross. That's his prayer. God, glorify me in the cross. Verse 1, the hour has come. What hour? The hour of the cross. We've already established that. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Verse 4, he says, I've glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. What was the work? Going to the cross. That was the job Jesus had to do. Jesus on the cross, he could pray for glorification. He could pray to glorify God on the cross because Jesus on the cross explained, and here I'm going to give you a seminary word, exegeted God most fully. Exegetical. Why do I want you to word that? Uh, know that word? Preachers, we are taught, we're supposed to be taught, where it wasn't always this way, but it is now much more common. We are taught to preach exegetical sermons. Ex, out of. We are supposed to teach, pull out 
explain what the verse means. We pull the meaning out of the word, words and we give it to you. That's how we preach an exegetical sermon. The opposite of exegetical isn't a word that's up there, and a lot of preachers do this. We call that eisegesis. We put into the words what we want to see, and that's what we tell you. If a preacher does that, get rid of him. He should tell you what the word says, not what he says. Now, before you fire me, at least ask if I meant to say something. It sounded like you said that, you put that in there. Hold on, just, you know, not call a meeting yet. Give me an opportunity. But uh, there's, there's a huge difference, and you know it when you see it. Trust me. So Jesus then, on the cross, exegetes. He explains God. On the cross, he is preaching a sermon. You know, we, we talk about, I've talked about, I don't know if anybody before me has, when we take the Lord's Supper, and Paul says, uh, every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The, the Lord's Supper preaches all by itself. Well, the cross preaches all by itself. What the cross preaches, because the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of that, what the cross preaches is God. It tells us four things about God. The first thing the cross, Jesus on the cross explains or exegetes about God is that God is holy. The cross shows us God's holiness. Without the cross, we would not have seen God's perfection. Because his reaction to sin, his hatred of sin, his refusal to compromise with sin shows us that our God is holy. Our God is perfect. And so he has to do something about sin. He can't just coddle up to it. He can't smooth it over and say, well, it's no big deal. Because God is holy. That is not a part of his character to sin or to allow sin. Second thing that we see God, our second, second way we see God exegeted by Jesus on the cross is that God is just, a, maybe a, a, a corollary to God's holiness. God is just. Without the cross, not only would we not see God's opinion of sin, his hatred of sin, but we would not have seen God's holy treatment and judgment of sin. We see that when God says, this is sin and this must be punished, that he takes his own word seriously and he punishes that sin. He is just. If we receive a punishment for sin, it is a just punishment because he is a just God. We have no room to argue. We have no defense to say, oh, but I didn't know. Oh, I shouldn't have to put up with this. Oh, but it wasn't that bad. God says, no, it is just. And if you don't believe me, look at the cross. This is sin. This is what sin does. This is the breakdown of sin. This is the problem of sin. Sin has to be answered for because I am a just God. Third thing that we see about God as Jesus hangs on the cross is that he is wrathful. Without the cross, we would not have seen the fullness of God's punishment of sin. Okay, God, we got that you are holy you don't like sin. We've got, we've got that you're just. You have to punish sin. But God, what does that look like? What does your wrath look like? And he says, that is my son on the cross. That's not some random stranger that I decided, oh, I'll kill him. That is my son, my only begotten son. The only son that I will have 
cosmically, spiritually, but has already existed. I told you, we're not getting into the Trinity this morning. But my son, I will put him on the cross to show you that my wrath is real. My wrath is final, and his wrath is harsh. We serve a wonderful God. We serve a perfect God. But just as much as his grace is perfect, and his mercy is perfect, his wrath is also perfect. And we see that in the person of his son hanging on the cross, bearing sins, the punishment for sins that he did not commit. That is the perfect wrath of God. God is holy, God is just, God is wrathful. We see it on the cross, but let's not leave out that we see that God is love on the cross. Without the cross, we would not have seen the depth of God's love, the depth of God's mercy, mercy not getting what we deserve. We would not have seen the depth of God's grace getting what we don't deserve. We would not have seen any of those things if we had not seen the cross, if we had not seen God's willingness to allow his son to take his perfect wrath. That is love. That is love for every one of you and, and me and everyone else that God would say, you deserve it, but I'm giving it to him. That's love. That is Jesus exegeting God on the cross for us. A deeper understanding of God. You want to know who God is? Look at the cross. Jesus says, glorify me as you glorify yourself in this hour that has come. It's time. The second thing that, we, that Jesus prays for is glorification in heaven. Verse 5, it's really the third thing, but we're going to cover it second. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Before creation, Jesus was. And Jesus always had been. And we can talk about theological terms like the eternal subordination of the Son and, and how their relationship is one of Son to Father, yet they are still equal and they have always existed. But I'm not going to talk about the Trinity this morning. It's just too much to get into. But before then, Jesus was. John 1.1, John starts off telling us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Logos, in the beginning was the Logos. And that Logos was the light of men. And Colossians tells us that everything that was created was created by Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that the God, by His Word, by His Logos, God created the heavens created everything that is. Jesus not only was a part, uh, was before creation, he was the creator. When God spoke and it was in Genesis, God's words were Jesus. How does that work? I don't know. I'm not going to talk about the Trinity this morning. But what we do know is that before creation, before we were in eternity past, forever, infinite, and in eternity future, infinite, we know that Jesus experienced perfect unity and intimacy with the Father. And if you're wondering how, I don't know. But at birth, at the incarnation, 
Jesus emptied himself. What does that mean? Did, God, did Jesus give up his divinity? Not exactly. The phrase we use is that Jesus voluntarily, temporarily, set aside the free use of his divine attributes. So when Jesus prayed, Jesus prayed. Jesus talked to God the same way you and I talk to God. If there were any sort of uh, opportunity for greater vision of God, a greater understanding in, in prayer, it was from God to Jesus, not the other way. Because Jesus voluntarily, temporarily set aside the free use of his divine attributes. No longer could he see heaven the way he saw heaven because he chose to set those aside when he became human. When Jesus says, the Son of Man does not know the day or the hour, he was telling the truth. As a human, as Jesus incarnated, as the Son incarnated, he was saying, you know what? I have set aside my knowledge for a while, so right now I can't tell you when I'm coming back. Only the Father knows that. Y'all, now he knows. It's not like Jesus is still confused about that. Now he knows. But at the time when he was here, he didn't know. When he turned and asked the woman, or asked the crowd, who touched me? The robe. He felt power going out of him. And we say, he's Jesus. How did he not know? Because he was Jesus. That's how he didn't know. He set aside the free use of his divine attributes. And so when somebody touched him, and if God did not allow him to know what was going on at the time, he didn't know. He chose to do that. Why? So he could more fully relate, more greatly relate, more personally relate to you and me. Because we say, oh, well, Jesus, he was God, so you know, it's not a big deal for him to die. Yeah, it was, because he felt it just like you and me. He felt the pain of loss. He felt the scattering of his disciples when he was arrested. He knew it was coming. He had read the scripture. He wrote the scripture. He knew it was going to happen, and yet he felt the pain of that. When, when he looked at Peter after the third denial, I don't think he gave him the stink eye because told you. I think he gave him the disappointed eye because he knew that his best friend had just deserted him completely and fully. Jesus was human. He was fully God. He, notice I didn't say he ceased to be divine. He was still fully God. I said he freely, voluntarily, temporarily gave up those divine attributes. It's all part of the Trinity, and I'm not preaching on that. Now we say, well, how can Jesus be glorified more? Right, because infinite glory is infinitely glorious. You can't increase glory, and you are absolutely right. You can't. Jesus is as glorified as he will ever be, and yet he is praying, God, glorify me and glorify yourself through me. Well, there's, there's a new glory in obedience. There's a passage, I believe in Hebrews, if I remember correctly, that says that the son learned obedience in his life. Well, that only makes sense if we have this idea that he set aside his divine attributes for a little while. And we see that he was obedient even unto death, Jesus was. And there's a new glory in that. There's, there's some aspect of of the glory that doesn't change because he's unchangeable, yet it is a new facet. It's a new way of seeing. 
Uh, there's a new glory in the name of Jesus. When, when we say there's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved, the name of Jesus, you notice we don't say the name of the Son. When we're talking about the Trinity, we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the first, second, and third person of the Trinity. That's what we talk about. That's the phrases we use. We don't, when we're talking about the Trinity, say God, Jesus, and HS. You know, we don't, we don't use names. They are positions. The name by which we are saved is Jesus. So there's some sort of new glory in this name of Jesus, this name that he was given. Jesus, now the Son, the second person of the Trinity, now carries that name into heaven with him. And that's what he's saying in verse 5. Glorify me in your presence with that glory that I used to have prior to coming to earth, prior to the incarnation, I had a perfect, infinite glory. Do the same thing in heaven, only this time they're going to get it more. They're going to understand it better because we have a, a, a glorification through obedience and glorification through the name of Jesus. That name is precious. That name is not a cuss word. That na name is not a name for your dog. That name is the name that saves us. We call out to that name. We don't say Joshua. We don't say Yeshua. We say Jesus. Now, I'm not going to attach too much mysticism to that Greek rendering of the name. It's okay if you say Yeshua. It's okay if you say Joshua. I'm not going to get hung up on that. My point is his name attached to that human who is also God has power. And that will be glorified that name in heaven. So, as I said, there's that infinite glory cannot be increased, but there's a new understanding and a new expression of his glory. And we see Jesus in a brand new way. Third thing we see is the glorification of the church in verses 2 through two and 3. Since you gave him authority over all flesh, him being Jesus, he's speaking of himself in the third person, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Of the 26 verses in chapter 17, five of them are a prayer about himself. But in reality, two of those are about the church. So, he prays about himself for five verses, except for two of those he prays about the church. Verses 9 through 19 is about his disciples. Verses 20 through 26 is about the church that's coming, those who would believe later. <clears throat> Excuse me. Where is Jesus' focus? Well, God, glorify me, glorify yourself, but I've got to pray for these people. These are why I'm here. These disciples that you've given me, he says, these, the church that you will give me later on. He says, in praying for them, in praying for himself, glorify me so that they may have eternal life and that it could go out to everyone uh, that you have given him. This is eternal life. Heaven. Eternal life is knowing God through Jesus Christ. The cross. Eternal life, heaven, is knowing God through Jesus Christ. The cross. You see what he's done? He bracketed. He, he, he put the cross first. He put heaven at the end. And he says everything in the middle is the church. And then when he says, how do we get the church? How do I need to pray for the church? Pray for their eternal life, heaven, that is only available through the cross or through uh, 
through him, himself, at the cross. How do you get that? How do you have eternal life? Well, he says in verse 3, he, he doesn't leave it uh, as, a, as, a, as a question for us, doesn't leave it open-ended. This is eternal life that they may know you and me. We can only know God through the cross. But what does this knowledge mean? Or what does knowing mean, that they would know me? First, knowing is knowledge. Today, right now, in our world, biblical knowledge is a dry wasteland. There is no biblical knowledge. Very little. There was a time when the Bible was taught in schools, and there was a time when Sunday school was a, a strong emphasis, or small groups, Bible studies, and it's just not that way anymore. There was a time when people who didn't even really go to church might know some answers to biblical knowledge. It is not the case. We don't know the Bible anymore. And that is a sad statement of the church. Because, in fact, in the church, we don't know the Bible like we used to. Knowing is knowledge. But, y'all, head knowledge isn't going to save you. We've got to do that. It's a requirement. It's a calling on our lives. How do we know God if we don't read his word? How do we understand God if we don't read what he said about himself? How do we understand how to relate to God if we don't look at the lives of others who related to God, whether accurately or inaccurately, depending on who we're reading about? We learn about God from his word. He didn't write this because he was bored. He wasn't interested in creating a bestseller. He wrote this so we would read it and know him. And if we don't read it, we're not going to know him like we could. So knowing, first of all, is just knowledge. But knowing is also deeper than that. It is an intimate relationship. In the Old Testament, when they talked about knowing, if you go back to your old, uh, your, your, your King James Bible, read about when somebody was about to have children or make them. And it will say that, so-and-so knew his wife. I'm like, yeah, they've just been talking, and oh, oh, that. That is the kind of intimacy that the Bible is talking about when we know God. It is a parallel, not exactly. It's an analogy here, so don't go crazy with it. But it is an intimacy that we don't get just by soaking up knowledge. At LSU, I took three Bible classes. I took Old Testament New Testament, and uh, Hebrew prophets while I was working on an undergraduate degree that I never got from LSU. Um, the professor, I had the same professor for the two Old Testament classes and a different one for the New Testament class. The New Testament class was probably a believer. The Old Testament professor was not at all. Didn't believe any of it. He had great knowledge of it, but he didn't have the second no. He had no intimate relationship with God. He knew stuff, but he didn't know God. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Have the biblical knowledge, but don't stop there. Have an intimate relationship that is analogous to the kind of relationship that a husband would have with a wife. That sort of deep, intimate, uh, emotional, uh, loving relationship. But then thirdly, knowing here for Jesus eternal life kind of knowing is increasing in likeness. Knowledge leads to looking more like Christ. If we just read it, or even if we work on and we have the relationship, 
but we don't begin to conform ourselves to the knowledge, conform ourselves to Christ. We haven't done what we're supposed to do. Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote uh, a short story called The Great Stone Face. Interesting story. I read it a couple of days ago. I'd love to recount the whole thing to you, but I can't. Uh, but it was all about a particular uh, area of the country that had in the side of the mountain a, a natural feature that looked like an old man. We used to have that in New Hampshire, as I think it was, called the Old Man in the Mountain. Um, maybe this is Hawthorne based his story on that. It's recently fallen off. It just looks like a cliff now. Hawthorne wrote this story about a guy named Ernest, grew up in the town in the valley that could see that stone face. And the prophecy was that someday somebody was going to show up in town that was going to be this great teacher, this great leader, was going to be honest and true and pure. And he was, we're going to know him, he said, because he's going to look like the man in the stone mountain. He's going to look like the, the great stone face. Well, various people came through as Ernest grew up from childhood to old man came through. First, it was a, a wealthy man who had gone off from town and came back rich, and everybody said, oh, look, it just, just, looks just like him. But, but then it was, you know, he, his focus was really his finances. And when the money was finally gone, they, re, they said, you know, he doesn't really, didn't really look like the stone face hardly at all. Later on, it was a, a president who had grown up but had gone off and been elected. He was a man of, of, of great political power. And, oh, surely, look at him. It's, it's, it's obvious he looks just like the stone face. No, in fact, once he got to, to, once the power was exposed and some wickedness in his power was, was uh, seen, it was like, no, he doesn't look like it. And every day, Ernest would go and he would look at that stone face and he would wonder, is this prophecy going to tr come true? And he would, he would spend hours. He, he was, he was the, the nicest guy in town. He was the most uh, 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 reliable man in town. And, but he would spend hours looking at that stone face and, and really just talking to it. Is, is he, is he going to come? Is it going to happen? Well, a general grew up in town, went off military uh, feats beyond compare, and he comes back, and everybody in town says, surely this is the, look, it is the spitting image of the stone face, and as he grew old and died, and not much changed, and uh, they decided, well, maybe, maybe he wasn't it, and so Ernest just stares at this face, and why, why is, why is it not coming, why is it not happening? Later on, a, a poet came through town, who had written verse that could could move the hearts of men, women, and children alike. And he sat down and talked to Ernest, and at this point, Ernest was an old man. And they discussed the poetry that he had written, and he said, it's beautiful. Surely, Ernest tells the poet, your insight to humanity, you must be the, the prophecy. I mean, you even look like him. And the poet said, no, it's not me, because what I can put on paper doesn't always comport with what's inside me. I can produce it, but it's not always a reflection of me. And Ernest went and spent time staring at the rock again and just didn't know what to do. And one day, as was his habit, he would, he would preach, really, about the stone face and say, one day somebody's coming, and they're going to lead us out of this. And, and the poet will happen to be there for this sermon. And in the midst of Ernest's explanation... The poet said, can there be any doubt? There is the man who carries the great stone face. 
And Ernest, in his humility, said, well, maybe someday there will be one come greater than me. The point of that story is Ernest became what he focused on. The point of Nathaniel Hawthorne in, in writing this was that Ernest looked like that because he studied that. He became that. Christian, who are you studying? Who are you focusing on? Jesus prays here that you would know Him and the glory of His Father. Focus on Him. Christ-likeness comes because of our relationship and the time we spend with Jesus. So if you want to look like Him, you've got to spend time with Him. Others will come and they'll look like, oh, they've got it figured out. I'll follow Him, I'll study Him, I'll listen to Him. And sure enough, they fail us every time. But when we look at Jesus, He never fails. So church, as Jesus knew when He prayed this, when He said, lift me up, uh, I will be glorified, God, you will be glorified, eternal life comes through knowledge, He understood that as a church, the more we know, the more we tell, then the more we glorify. When we lift up Jesus, we glorify Jesus. When we, cre- when we spend intense time of prayer and Bible study and know Him better, we know Him more, we glorify Him. But He is most fully glorified when we tell other people. My question for our church this morning is this. Is Jesus' prayer being answered in us? Is Jesus' prayer being answered in you and in me? Am I changing? Am I so focusing on Christ? Is, is my eternal life, this knowledge that I claim to have, is it changing me? Is it doing a work in me so that I can then be a conduit for God doing the work in other people? That is our question Are we changing into the one whom we worship? Uh, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse was pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, a very uh, renowned Presbyterian church uh, in the early 1900s. After World War I, he took a trip to one of the battlefields in Belgium. It was in the spring. There was no wind. And yet, as he walked along the battlefield, these trees were just dropping leaves like crazy. And he caught one of them, and they were dry and brittle and just turned to dust in his hand. And he really couldn't figure out why. It was spring. Leaves don't drop in the spring. It it wasn't windy, so there was no point for them to be, no reason for them to be blown out of the tree. And so he asked somebody, and it was explained to him, well, it's the new growth pushing out the dead leaves. It's that sap of spring rising up in the tree and pushing out what is dead and bringing forth new life. Our knowledge of Christ, our relationship with Him, our time spent with Him, our knowing Him, our glorification of Him through our lives as Christians, through our mission as a church, pushes out the dead and shows new life to people who have no hope. That is the calling of the church. That is the prayer of Jesus and we haven't even gotten to the part where he prays for us yet. 
Jesus' heart is that we would be a missionary church, that we would lift up the name of Jesus. New life in us individually must push out the dead. Those dead branches that we talked about when we were talking about the vine, it's almost like Jesus knew what he was doing when he was teaching. He did. He's talked about the dead branches being cut off, and now he's telling them that as this new life wells up in you, the dead gets pushed out. Church, are we pushing out the dead in our own lives? Individually, are we letting the fullness of Christ, the knowledge of Christ, push out what is old and dry and useless in our lives? That's the question for the church. But this morning, there's a question for you if you've never trusted Christ, uh, an unbeliever, you're not a follower of Jesus. You can have new life today. Jesus will begin that process of pushing out the deadness of sin, pushing out the, the, the evil, the, the, the yuck, the, the poison, what is dead and useless in your life, he will push it out by the new heart that he gives you when he saves you. Do you want that today? Do you want that new life? Here's how. You can have it. You've got to admit you're a sinner. You, you've got to admit that you've got the dead stuff. As a matter of fact, you are dead. You are lifeless. You are doomed to hell. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of those sin is death. You, you've got no option. You, you have no hope. You can't work yourself out of it. You can't buy your way out of it. You're not going to bargain yourself out of it. Eternal life is only through knowing God and the one whom he sent, Jesus Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That gift was given. We stand at the very threshold of him laying down his life in our look at John. We celebrate that in just a few weeks on Easter. Celebrate it today by experiencing that new life. He proved his own love to you. While you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. While you are his enemy, he loves you and he died for you. Will you follow him? Because all you need to do is call in the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Everyone who does it can be saved. You can be saved this morning. New life can be pushed, or death can be pushed out, and new life grow. If you will confess your, with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. That is your choice, and today is your time to choose. Will you choose Christ today? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you that you have provided the way. Lord, you have provided the push the new life that kills the old, the, the, the burial that gets rid of the old man or woman, and, and, and the, the resurrection of new life when we follow you. Lord, I pray this morning that if there is someone here that is not a follower of yours, has never trusted you as Savior, maybe still is even confused about that, that they will come and talk to me either now or after the service, or pull a deacon aside or someone else and say, I don't understand, how can I have this new life? How can it be so simple? But Lord, there may be a believer here this morning whose knowledge of 
of you is weak, whose relationship with you is weak, whose, whose change because of their time with you has not been what it should be. Lord, I pray the altar will be filled this morning with people giving their, well, their lives back to you, giving you control again, and saying, Lord, I want to look more like you. God, I want to be the answer to your prayer in First Baptist Sulphur, in my community, in my world. God, you move in a mighty way this morning, and may you do a great work in the hearts of everyone here. We make this prayer petition in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what's your decision this morning? Will you follow Christ? Will you trust him as Savior? Maybe you followed and you need to be baptized done all that and you've been thinking about joining our church and you want to follow up with that this morning. You want to be a part of what we're doing here. Come and do that. Maybe you are a believer and you need to do something at this altar. You need to give something to Jesus this morning. You need to look him in the face and say, God, I, 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 need, I, I need a change. Whatever your decision is this morning, you can share it on a connection card. The staff will pray for you. You can come and talk to me and I'll pray for you now. Or you can come here to these nice padded little uh, benches up here. Put your knees on them and pour it out to God. But whatever you do this morning, you make a decision for him today and do not go out these doors without having changed your heart in some way. Let's stand, let's sing, and let's do business with God this morning.